We are back in a series that we revisit somewhat often as a church, and I think rightfully so, that we call Faithful to the Core. And so you've seen uh, some version of this graphic over many years here. And we go back to this because uh, it is very easy for a community to lose a sense of identity, to drift off into um, things that are not as core and central to, to who God uh, has called it to be, or even if it's not a Christian thing, right? Like mission drift is a thing in the business world where um, you started uh, focused on one specific problem and then you get distracted over here and you lose some of those, what they call in the business world, kind of core competencies, um, and suddenly you find yourself a much less effective, much less uh, at least focused community. And so for us, we want to return to first things. We want to return to uh, many organizations would call these core values. For us, from the beginning, we've always called them core identities because we really want this to be both who we see ourselves to be and also what we're aspiring to be as a community. So over the next number of weeks, we'll be working through uh, these little icons here. And today we begin with this first one which is uh, represented up here by this cross and the crown of thorns around it. And that is the core identity of gospel-centered, gospel-centered. And so uh, here's what I want to do. I just want to take those, those two words and define them for you and what it means to hold those two things together. And so we will spend a, a significant amount of our time defining this, this term, the gospel, very important biblical term. Uh, but I actually want to start with what does it mean to be centered on anything, what it, what is, and what will it mean to be centered on the gospel? Here's how I think of our core identity of gospel-centered. I think of it as the overriding why of our church. It is the why from which every what flows, if you want to think of it that way. Um, why do we do Sunday gatherings? Why do we do discipleship courses? And maybe most specifically, what I want you to see is the connectedness to the rest of these core identities, that why do we believe that it's important to give you a preview of the next week to be thoughtfully engaged? Why do we believe in life in multi-ethnic community? Why do we care about seeking justice and mercy? And why do we believe that joy and generosity and mission matters? The answer is the gospel. That's the answer to all of these. It's the why that stands behind all of these. And so to be centered on the gospel is to say that it is our explanatory why. It's, it's um, when you dig down um, as deep as you can into everything we do as a church, at some point you should hit rock bottom, which is the gospel. That is the foundation of everything we do. That's another way to think of it, that the gospel is, is the foundation of everything we do. And anything that's built that has any meaningful growth to it, any meaningful significance to it, needs to be founded on it. It needs to make sense as something that you would build off of the gospel. So it's the why that stands behind everything we do. And of course, this is true corporately for us as a church, but why we've chosen this as, as our first, and, and I would pretty strongly argue our primary core identity, is because I actually think that the gospel, which again, we'll spend a significant amount of time defining in just a moment, that the gospel is meant to be the why behind everything. And I mean that as radically wide as it sounds. It is the why behind your life. It is the why behind my life. It is the why behind um, existence itself. It is the why behind human history. It is the why behind 
the galaxies and cosmos that are out there. That the gospel, that we're centered on the gospel because reality itself is meant to be centered on the gospel, if I can make as radical a claim as that. There is a, put it this way, there is a coherence that comes when what you do accords with the reason why you're doing it. There is a, um, right, like if, if I put a ball in your hands and I said, go score a point, what you did with that ball, whether you put it through a little circle that's 10 feet above your head, whether you kicked it into a net, whether you threw it at someone else and tried to get them, what you did with it only makes sense if you know why you're doing it. What game am I playing should be the, if I just put a ball in your hand and I say, go score a point, your rightful question should be, well, what game am I playing? Because what you do only makes sense if it's in accord with why you're doing it. Now, that's a very simple example, but uh, this is a huge, I don't know if debate is, it's a huge conversation right now in, in our culture. Because there are many, both Christian and non-Christian philosophers, people way smarter than me, who um, are noting that one of the things that's happening is that uh, we as a civilization, whoever you want to argue, particularly the West, maybe specifically America, um, but probably larger than that, kind of, kind of that Western Christianity conglomerate, however big you want to make that and however long that's been going on, however many centuries. But this is a, this is a part of human culture that's very much built on the foundation of, of Christianity as its why, for better or worse. But the, the foundation of a lot of what we just take for granted in our culture is, is really rooted on Christianity. And what people are saying is one of the incoherent things that's happening in our culture is that we're tr trying to maintain some of what Christianity gave us while taking away the foundation of, of the why behind it. For instance, maybe most notably, a book that got a ton of conversation in this last year written by this British um, non-Christian agnostic at best scholar named Tom Holland, a book called Dominion, and his overall thesis in this book um, is exactly what I'm saying, which is that Western civilization was very much founded on the foundation and base and why of Christianity and the scriptures and all of these things. And all of the what that came from that, um, and here he's emphasizing especially the, the good things that came from that, only make sense within the why of Christianity. And the one that he points out, and, and hopefully this will land all this, I don't know if you're following me, but hopefully this will land it. Our culture and society um, and again, I'm not being very nuanced in defining those, but we take for granted the goodness of human rights. The idea that all people deserve a, a basic kind of dignity about them, right? We hold these truths, you might say, to be self-evident, right? We hold these truths to be self-evident. We hold human rights as a no-brainer. Of course, all people deserve to be treated with a basic kind of dignity and value. All of human life has an, has an equal essential value to it. And what this historian is saying, what philosophers are saying, is 
that that assumption is really built on, on, on when you dig down, ultimately the rock you get to is a Christian foundation that says that human beings were created in the image of God with a certain kind of dignity because we're created by something higher than us and that that value is given from something beyond us. Now, if you take out that foundation, if you take out that Christian why and say, yes, human rights just, just make sense just because, but your actual why underneath there becomes there is no God, there is nothing beyond this world, we are just space times matter plus chance, and we are right um, the result of survival of the fittest, then as you dig down, you begin to realize there's no foundation under those things and, and all of that collapses, right? Because if we're just animals giving into our desires and the best that you can do is out-survive the person next to you, what in the world role does human rights have in that analysis? And what these philosophers, even these non-Christian philosophers are saying is if we're not careful, we will take out that foundation and if we can't replace that, if we can't figure out a coherent why behind something like human rights or, or um, behind something like, yeah, the poor deserve to be cared for. That is, that is an essential thing that we, again, just kind of take for granted. It's like, of course our government would feel a certain kind of responsibility to care for those um, who, who don't have, to care for those with various kinds of mental and, and physical disability, right? Like we take these things, one of the most interesting things that I've been doing is I've been reading a, a lot of history um, because we're about to do a series on the book of Philippians. So I've been reading a lot of history about this very unique city in the ancient world called Philippi that that letter was written to. What Philippi was was a Roman colony. One of the most interesting things is as you read about the culture of that moment, it feels like you're landing on another planet because we're just before, we're a couple hundred years before Christianity asserts itself as the foundational why of civilization. You don't have that foundation. And so things like caring for the poor are actually things that in that society were so far from self-evident. There was no responsibility for the poor, right? The equal dignity of all people was explicitly said to be a fallacy, and instead this honor culture that they had said, no, 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 if you have a lot, if you come from certain families, you are by definition, you are in your essential being of more value to society, to the gods, to whatever. And we just forget how much of the why is not self-evident. It is evident because there is a much deeper why. And I think that one of the things that we as followers of Jesus must do in this moment, we must have the courage to do again and again. And we must be able to do, yeah, corporately as a church, it's important that I, as your pastor and your teachers, that we're able to do these things. But it's also important for you to understand how essential that why is. Because as it's being torn away, we can't believe the veneer that, yeah, but society is still essentially good while actually that foundation is being taken away. And so we need to understand that why. Not just for ourselves as a church as we decide what programs we do, but this is a much grander narrative going on in our culture that our ability to articulate the why of human life, of human dignity, of human society, and why Christianity makes the most sense of it is really centered. So with all of that, what is the gospel? What does it mean to be centered on the gospel? Let me just read you through a couple passages that mention the gospel. Um, one of the things we do when you become a member here at Jacob's Well, 
is we have you define what the gospel is, which is not a test. It's not a gotcha. It's because we use this word so much and because this word is used so much in the New Testament that if, if you don't have a, a basic understanding of it at the front end of coming into our community, you're going to get confused really fast. And, um, and that goes for even engaging the New Testament. If you don't have some understanding of what the gospel is, I don't know if you, you're the type who reads my weekly emails, but I actually sent you a couple videos um, that explain this term um, because you, you just can't, you can't have a robust enough understanding of the gospel as a Christian because it just shows up everywhere. So let me just read you a couple of these passages. Pam, go to that first one, the 1 Corinthians 15. This is the Apostle Paul, early Christian missionary teacher. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, uh, of the gospel. I, oh, now let me read this with the right inflection. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, go to the next slide, that he was raised on the third day, and that's what it says. Okay, so here's what we have here, the gospel. This is the gospel that Paul himself preached, that they received, there's a, there's a need for human response to this gospel. It's what they stand in. So it's not something that you move beyond. It becomes the very sustenance, the source, the, the, the definition of your faith. And it's that which saves you. It's of first importance. Right? It, it's essential. Um, and it fundamentally, at its core, has to do with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the impact that that had in, in the overall story of God. Let's go to, to the next one. This is the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. There are these four books at the beginning of the New Testament that are called the Gospels, which are summaries of the life of Jesus, which we said to summarize the life of Jesus and what he did is to talk about the Gospel, right? We just saw that in 1 Corinthians 15, which is why these first four books about Jesus and about what he did are called the gospel. So this is the gospel according to, this is Mark, one of Jesus' earliest, earliest apostles and followers. This is his account of it. Here's what he says. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus comes and the message he brings with him is the gospel of of God. And here's how he defines that gospel. The time is fulfilled. So the gospel fulfills. In other words, it, it, it enters into a very specific story and fulfills some hopes and promises that that story has produced. It's happening now. And it has essentially in this case to do, not, not in this one articulation of it, with the work and and death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, it has specifically to do with the coming of the kingdom of God. But that's Jesus's definition of what the gospel is. The kingdom of God is at hand. And notice here again that the gospel requires a response. Repent and believe in what? In the gospel. Okay, let me pause and define this word because it's not a word that we use all the time. Gospel, what does that word mean? Good news, right? It's, 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 it's a translation of a Greek word. You Angelion, U-E-U is a prefix that means good, and angelion is a message. Good news. This is a good message. 
This is one of the most unique things about Christianity. Is Christianity at its core is not a, it's not a, a religious teaching. Christianity at its core is not a, a way of life. It is both of those things. It has teaching as a part of it. It does have a certain way of life. At its core, though, if, if the gospel is the core thing that Jesus is preaching, if the Apostle Paul says the, of first importance is the gospel, then at the core of Christianity is actually news. In other words, at the core of Christianity is a historical reality that something happened in the world. Right? Um, uh, I'll quote Tim Keller later, uh, but uh, I'll bring him in now. Um, so Tim Keller, pastor in New York City, probably my greatest theological pastoral influence. He has, he has this great thing where he says, look, um, Christianity at its core is good news. It is not good advice. And it is good news because something has happened that requires a response. That's what news is. News is this thing happened, therefore you should respond in this way. Here's what advice is. Advice is something is on the line that you need to achieve, and here's how you might achieve it. Many people confuse Christianity as good advice. Here's how you can make your way to God. Of course you want to be with God. Of course you want to go to heaven. Here's how you can do it. Enter Christianity. That's not what Christianity is. That's not good news, right? Like that doesn't feel like good news to say, if you just do these 65 things, then maybe you will be acceptable to God. No, that's bad news that needs good news. Here's the good news. Something has happened that has saved you. Now you need to respond to it. That's the gospel. That's what Christianity is. Is Jesus Christ has died been buried and risen again, and that that was for you in some sense. And we will get to that. And your response to that is a requirement to turn that into good news applied to your life. That's what the gospel is. Let's go to the next one. Fairly famous articulation of the gospel here. This is Romans. This is that, that same uh, teacher, missionary Paul. This is his magnum opus, his, his great articulation of the Christian faith. He says, this is right at the beginning of it. This is kind of his thesis statement for you writing teachers out there. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Some of the same themes here. Notice how uh, here the emphasis is the good news is foundationally something that God has done. It's sourced in God. It is the gospel of God. It is not... It does not find its origin in human beings. It is the gospel of God to everyone who believes. Again, see the requirement of response here? To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, this is an interesting. This is something that Paul does elsewhere in Ephesians 2. We'll actually get to that in a couple weeks when we look at our core identity of life in multi-ethnic community. Is he says, what God does is uh, primarily and first about vertical reconciliation with him that this is God making right what's gone wrong in the human story. And we'll look at what that means. But here in this articulation of the gospel, and you see how there's different emphases? One gospel, different kinds of emphases that, that even, even one person, the Apostle Paul, makes in different places. Here he's emphasizing that that vertical reconciliation then translates into a kind of horizontal reconciliation, that there is a coming together of disparate people groups, of ethnos is the idea here, of ethnic groups, that God is bringing those back together. And really what, what we'll see in the next text is that really this is God's global plan of bringing people together through what he's done 
vertically. So there's vertical uh, reconciliation, and then there's this horizontal reality. Because, I'll just give you one more from Paul himself. This is from Galatians. He says, in the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, that's all non-Jews, the world, the nations, that's most of us included in this room who are not of Jewish origin. This is a worldwide plan. Preached the gospel beforehand to this guy Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. What is the gospel? The gospel is that which brings blessing to all nations. That's where we enter into the story. Is because at the end of the day, there's no getting around that the reason why gospel is such a powerful word is because, now this is a little old school, uh, we, don't, we don't do this as much now because we're more techie than this, but remember uh, back in the day when you would get an email from someone and there would be a hyperlink in it, and what, what color would that? It would be blue, right? Inevitably it would be blue. Probably be underlined, maybe italicized. Like the, they were trying to communicate, if you click on this, what? There's way more behind it, right? Like there's a lot there's a lot on promise. If you click here, your, your friendly neighborhood pastor, I send things, right? And I say, you can find this here. And the assumption is, you know that, that behind that here, boom, that there's all this information behind it. That's how I want you to think of the gospel in the New Testament, is it's always in bright blue, underlined, italicized, because there's all of this stuff behind it. And what's most essentially behind it, because it's good news and it's about history, is a story. And that story is the story that the scriptures tell. It's the, and I love this word, it's the meta-narrative. It's the narrative that's all right, meta, the metaverse is coming, right? Like, um, it's the meta-narrative. We don't need a metaverse. We need a meta-narrative. We need an understanding of the story that makes sense of my individual story. That's what the scriptures provide us. Here's the classic articulation of it in four little photos, four little icons. There we go. So what that says, I don't know if you can see it, is creation, fall, redemption, restoration. How many of you heard this way of putting together the story of the scriptures? Okay, maybe like half of you. Um, thank you for the hands on the, on the YouTube. I see you out there. No, I don't. Um, I'm going to assume it's about the same, about half, right? Um, first of all, I remember sitting in a seminary class, uh, one of the first lectures that I ever went to in seminary. I went to seminary having read like two Christian books. I knew very little. And somebody laid this out for me, and I just remember going to the cafeteria and being like, guys, the Bible is one coherent story from beginning to end. And I remember all these Bible college grads, and some of you, um, God bless you, but um, being like, like, duh, like, what did you think the Bible was? And I'm like, well, I kind of thought it was a collection of teachings and like a lot of weird stuff. And, but this idea that you can actually put the Bible together in one big story, um, if it's new to you, it was very, very new to me. I'm going to blast through this. Okay, But I want you to get a sense of the sweeping scope of this story and just how much is behind that click when you go behind the gospel. So this is for you note takers out there. I did a lot of slides. Um, Pam was thrilled who's running slides, where she was thrilled. She loves when I have tons of slides. But let's see if we can uh, barrel through this puppy. And I'm going to actually add one to those four. So creation. So we start, um, the, the gospel is essentially about God. And we have a God who creates all things puts human beings in this place that he has created for them, gives human beings a specific role, which is that we would be the bearers of his image. Now, that means a lot of things, but what it, probably at the core, probably the most 
um, important thing to understand about what it means that human beings bear the image of God is that we represent, we are uniquely representative of God in the world. That we're to represent God in relationship with God in a way that whales and kangaroos and marigolds don't. Like human beings have this very specific role to be who God would be if he were physically present in the world. That's how the story begins. And the idea is stewardship. We are given the world by God and invited to then not be owners of the world, not rule the world ourselves apart from God, but in relationship and in submission to God to rule the world for its flourishing and steward a good creation. This is where the idea of the kingdom of God, remember we saw that one where, where, remember that guy Jesus, right? Like Jesus's definition of the gospel was the kingdom of God is here. And most biblical scholars would argue your first place where you get an idea of what the kingdom of God is, is right here in the garden, where we have what, we have the definition of what human flourishing is, what the human being fully alive and what creation at its best is, which is when human beings are submitted to God ruling over creation for its good and for one another's good. It defines what goodness is. That's what the kingdom of God is. Flourishing establishes God, then humans, then creation. That's in Genesis 1 and 2, just the first two chapters of the Bible established um, where that is. Think of, by the way, think of any great story that you know. Think of any Pixar movie, think of any uh, Disney movie, think of any of the great epics, Chronicles of Narnia, Lord of the Rings, whatever it is. It always starts with an establishment of, 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 a, of, a good, of a good scene. It starts with a sense of, hey, things are all right right now, right? And then what happens? Something goes horribly wrong. Like, even in our human stories, we pick up on the rhythms of this meta story. So next part of the story is when things go horribly wrong. This is the fall. Um, I put this Genesis 3 to 11. That, that's, some people just say Genesis. No, we, we get a sense of just how deep um, and horribly uh, the fall impacts everything over a number of chapters in Genesis. So this is where human beings decide, eh, we want to run things ourselves. We don't want to be submitted to anyone. Does this sound familiar to anyone, right? Like, you can say all you want about Adam and Eve. This is our shared story. No, I don't want to be submitted to anyone. I want to be free to do as I want to do. I want to define what's good. If it's pleasurable and desirable in my sight, then I want to take it and enjoy it for me, no matter the cost, right? Like, these should be some familiar themes if you've, you know, lived more than whatever, uh, three days, right? Like, um, this is who we are. This is what happens to our first parents. And what happens is that there's separation in that relationship. That actually, now there is a fundamental fissure. Uh, there, there's a fundamental break. There's a fundamental um, discord in our relationship with God. And so there's separation. Uh, and, and a lot of people say, uh, or, or ask, like, so is God petty? And he's just like, oh, I don't like that you did that. Get out of my garden. Like, no, that's not who God is. God is always primarily good and gracious. And actually, his separating of human beings, his casting them out of the garden, is because he knows that they will be destroyed as now unholy beings, other than God, separated from God's goodness. They will be destroyed by his holiness. And, and so, in fact, it's actually God who hides himself in graciousness towards them. And so, yeah, their judgment is a casting out of the presence of God, but it's so that actually they might be preserved, which is mind-boggling. We see this again and again in judgment. Kingdom of God is usurped. Decay replaces that flourishing. So instead of, right, like uh, you've probably seen me do this before, if flourishing is God, then human beings, then creation, what you have is this sudden flipping where an apple is eaten by human beings in direct disobedience to God, and you have a world turned upside down. 
and what was meant to be flourishing now becomes chaos. What was meant to have a certain uh, orderliness to it now has this disorder and chaos to it. And so you have decay replacing that flourishing. The kingdom of God is usurped. There's decay that replaces that flourishing. The next part of the scene, now sometimes we jump right to redemption. The next part of the scene I'm going to call pursuit and promise because it's, it's all of this. It's everything between you know, Genesis 11 and the New Testament. What do you do with that stuff? Well, here's what God does. He goes to one guy named, guess who? Abraham. This is our, this is our guy, Abraham. And, and he basically says in so many words to Abraham, through you, I will make right what's gone wrong. This is, do you remember what Paul called this? This is the first time the what is preached. The gospel is preached. He said the gospel was preached in advance to Abraham. And the first bit of good news that we get in an otherwise bad story is God going to Abraham and saying, through you and through the nation that I will create, through your offspring, all the world will go from the curse of chaos and disorder into the blessing that I intended for it. The gospel, right? It starts, it's whispered all the way back in this part of the story. And so you have this relationship in the Old Testament between God and Israel. You have a God who initiates redemption, this project of, of winning back. Abraham is nobody. Abraham is not exceptional in any way. We get this sense that Abraham is as random as any human being on the planet at that moment, and God comes to him and says, out of a sheer act of grace, I'm going to initiate my rescue plan for humanity through you. And then we have God's relationship with Abraham, with this nation that comes from him, Israel, which God initiates. Humanity um, becomes filled with this sense of expectation that God will indeed do something about the devastation caused by human rebellion and distrust of God. And, and um, many people say, man, what's going on in the Old Testament? Why did it take so long? I, I think a lot of what's going on there is that God is giving us a full picture in, in his relationship with one people, in his relationship with one nation. He's giving us a full picture of his character. In, I guess there's no other in contrast to the, to the fullness of the character of humanity, that we're getting a, a rich picture of who God is in deep, intimate relationship with this one people that again and again and again rebel against him, and yet again and again and again are pursued by him. Right? That's an oversimplistic idea, but I think that that's what's going on in the, in the Old Testament. You get the dignity of the entire human experience through books like the Psalms, through books like Ecclesiastes, through books like Song of Psalm, the full affirmation of the full human experience that nothing is outside of God's intentions, nothing is outside of God's pursuit of the goodness of human people. This is Genesis 12, all the way through the end of the Old Testament. Bursting into that now comes Jesus. And bursting onto the scene, he says, there's good news, right? Like there's been promise, there's been hope, there's been uh, the, the expectation of blessing. I've got good news, it's here because the kingdom of God is being reestablished. So this is a first importance, what Jesus came and did. There is no way of getting around, it is irreducible that the gospel finds its focal point in Jesus and the work of Jesus, namely his work of death and resurrection on our behalf for the sins of the world. And so we have a God who puts on human flesh, lowers himself to the point of death, becomes the savior of all things, and is now, one of the most fascinating things that's said about Jesus 
is that because of what he does, that Jesus, the one who took on human flesh, is now reigning and ruling over all creation in perfect relationship with his Father. Which, does that sound familiar to you? Who was supposed to reign and rule over all creation in relationship with God? Adam and Eve, us, humanity. Humanity, that's happening now because of what Jesus says. Do you see how he's the fulfillment of that longing? Now, what we don't see yet is the full implementation of what it means that Jesus is reigning and ruling over all things. And so that's why the story doesn't end here. That's why the story doesn't end with a restored relationship between God and people, which you can have literally as you sit here today. If you are alienated from God, if you have rebelled against him, if you have distrusted his authority in your life, what Jesus has come to do, the good news that we will offer you week after week as a church, is that God himself has done all that was necessary in order to bring healing and restoration and reconciliation to that broken relationship with him. Jesus is Lord. He is reigning and ruling over all things. And to use some of the most beautiful language that the New Testament used to speak of this is it says that if anyone is in Christ, they are a, what? A new creation. Do you hear how that fits with this overall story? That you are part of God making right what went wrong in creation. There is a new creation. There is a, a new project being launched in the world from this second and more perfect Adam, if you will, to use, again, language that's used, in the, that there's a new creative work that God is doing in the world. Here you get the launch of the church, which is the place where this good news is proclaimed again and again, but also where the implications of this good news, where the why becomes the what of our life together. We are to be a people who represent the fact that there is a new creation work going on in the world. And not just to proclaim that in word, but to live that uniquely. To be a people who are humbled by the reality that we are only saved by the grace of God. Therefore, there should be a humility about the church that the world finds strange. We should be those who see the equal dignity of all people because we believe this story. We believe that this is the story of all creation. So we of all people should be most defensive of those who are most vulnerable. We should be people who take better care of one another than the world does because this is something that we see God deeply wanting is the, is the repair of all that's wrong. Not just interpersonally, but the repair of things wrong at at, at all levels of society, right? Like this is the launch of the church in all of its beautiful complexity. My favorite idea of what the church is meant to be is that we are meant to be an outpost of heaven, right? We are meant to be a, a uh, to use the language that we'll look at in Philippians, we're to be a colony of heaven. We're to be a, a um, wonderful scholar called Leslie Newbegin says, we are to be a counter society as a church. We are right now to live in ways. Nothing, right? Like, and fireworks don't have to go out off every week or something. But we are to, just in the basic way that we interact as God's people, we are to show something of, of, of the invasion of heaven to the broken and decaying realities of earth. Where to be places where new creation is happening. This is a great dignity of the church. This is a great calling of the church. And yet... Far too often, we narrow this story to, um, I'm a bad person, Jesus came to make it right, now I'm just sitting around waiting to go to heaven. 
right? Which makes the church at best like a bus stop or a train station for heaven, right? And what do you do at a train station and a bus shop, bus stop? You wait around and do nothing and hope that no one talks to you and no one looks at you, right? This is how the church has often lived its life because we have an impoverished gospel. Because there's another chapter in this story, and it's the final one, restoration. That there is a day coming when the full implementation of Jesus' reign and rule over all things is implemented. Uh, and I like that language. It's implemented to the four corners of creation. That we have the promise of the renewal of all things. That we have this vision variously throughout the New Testament, but especially in the book of Revelation. We have a fully healed and restored humanity. Those who have responded to this good news, as we are called to do, are given new life, are given resurrected bodies, are very desires change, and we become the human beings in a miracle of resurrection that we were always intended to be. The kingdom of God is fully implemented, all of creation renewed. My favorite language for this from the Lord of the Rings, all sad things are untrue in this vision of what awaits us. So what is the gospel? (laughs) It's all that, and it's really good news. It's really good news. Because in a world where all around us we see decay, where we see disease, right? Where we see hurt and harm and aggression and war and violence, justice. When we look within ourselves, we see a lot of that same stuff rumbling around there no matter how well we conceal it. We say, where's hope? Where's good news in all of this bad news? And it's in this story. Because this is the true story of the world. This is actually what's happening and what will happen. And when you enter into the story, when you make this story your story, you begin to experience in strange, unexpected, and wild ways that, whoa, there is something acting upon me. There is an author of this story, right? One of the most beautiful images that Hebrews gives of who God, uh, well, specifically who Jesus is, is Jesus, who is the author of, and the completer of our faith. Jesus acts upon you when you respond to this good news and put yourself under it and say, that's my only hope. Because within myself, in this world, there's not reason for hope. But in this story, there's reason for infinite hope. And when we put ourselves in that place, an author, a finisher, an an actor comes and he does things within us and through us that actually accord with this story. couple other things that I'll say. Let's go back to this image. Um, oh, this is when I bring in uh, Bishop Tim Keller. Um, here's, here's Keller's. This is probably my favorite. Uh, if you're like, okay, I can't repeat all that. Here's my favorite sort of short definition. This is Keller's definition of the gospel. Can't argue with it, you know? Tim Keller. Um, that's a joke for those of you who know how big a deal Tim Keller is. Uh, some of you are like, I don't care Tim Keller is. That's fine. Uh, through the person and work of Jesus Christ, right, Jesus, God fully accomplishes salvation for us, rescuing us from judgment for sin into fellowship with him, and then restores the creation in which we can enjoy our new life together with him forever. I love that. Simple. Um, Not that you can memorize it, just looking at it. But that's about as as short as I've ever seen that I think captures all of the nuance of this story. Let me say one more thing about this. I know know we're getting late here. Let me just say one more thing. there's a couple mistakes that we can often make about this. Because there's some people who, when they articulate the gospel, they primarily articulate it as 
Um, you're a sinner in need of a Savior. That Savior has come. Respond to that Savior. Respond to the good news. That's the story. And that is absolutely core to the story. That is absolutely essential to the story. But in some ways, go to the next slide, Pam. In some ways, let me see if I can explain this. In some ways, that's to only emphasize these two parts of the story. That's fall and redemption. It's a very individualized emphasis of the gospel. It's very much an emphasis on uh, the eternal life that comes when you respond to this gospel, and it really emphasizes the idea of salvation by grace. But it leaves out the reality that those two parts of the story belong in these bookends of creation and new creation. So a lot of times when we only have this as our articulation of the gospel, what's left out is a lot of what the church, what, what the evangelical movement is being called out for which is a laxness towards the suffering of the world, a disengagement with the world. In fact, a, a, a sort of pushing away from the world so that we can just wait for the reward of our redemption, rather than an acknowledgement that what creates, creation sets the terms of what a flourishing world is, and then when we receive redemption, we're to be part of the restoration of this world. We're to be, right, like, like we said in the Lord's Prayer uh, sermon series, we're to be the answer to the prayer your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That the church is the primary means through which God is doing that now. Now, there's other people who want to emphasize this side of it, who say the world is really damaged and we have to do something about it. And this is uh, sort of the corporate emphasis. The church must arise and, and be engaged in the systems of this world, must be engaged with injustice. This is a real emphasis on the kingdom of God. Man, if the kingdom of God is here, then that should have impact in real time and space and in people's lives. It's a real emphasis on the new creation part. Yes and amen to that. If this is our only articulation of the gospel, something is wrong with the world and we need to do something about it, what we leave out is that something has been done about it that none of us can do because Jesus is the core of the gospel. It also often leaves out the reality of the holiness of God and his very real wrath against sin. Yes, he created a good world and we're headed towards a good world. The bad that has happened, humanity is complicit in that. In fact, we are the problem with it. And so to leave out a gospel of salvation by grace, to leave out the cross from that, is to actually impoverish by your gospel the holiness of God and to minimize the sinfulness of human beings. And so we want to hold these things together. Thus, the giant, oddly-sized ampersand right? Like very important ampersand. Like we want to hold these things together, which is why, go back to Keller's definition. That's why I like this definition. Through the person and work of Jesus Christ, God fully accomplishes salvation for us. Do you hear? That's kind of the left side of what I was just showing you. Rescuing us from judgment for sin. Sin will be judged. We will stand before, right? Like Jesus is clear on this in his power. You will stand in judgment as an individual person and be accountable for your life. He rescues us from that judgment into fellowship with himself and then restores the creation in which we can enjoy our new life together with him forever. And that this is something that's progressively happening, not just at the end, that this is the work of God here and now, right? And so you can call this whatever, evangelism and the pursuit of justice. You can call this uh, individual emphasis and accountability before God and an emphasis on the church and its responsibility to culture. I'm saying this, and this is a little, little, little pro provocative, but I'm saying this because so many of our core identities only make sense if you understand that ampersand. 
if you understand that we're trying to hold these hold together the holiness of God and, and human beings' accountability for their sin with a very real call to not just shout at the world that it needs to repent and believe, but to actually come alongside them and show them the love of God, to embody new creation, to show a different way, so that by our very life together, that our life preaches good news as a community to the world. This is what we're about. This is the why the what is built on top of it. I think that's about all I can say. I could go on and on about this. Um, you don't want me to do that. Here are our identities. Um, what I would love, maybe I should have done this if I was more creative, is gospel-centered is, is the one that, all, that flows down into all of these. If I could uh, remake this graphic, I'd put gospel-centered above and then the four others kind of branching off from it. And that's an image that I'll try and create. Probably my wife will create it this week um, because that's the image that I want in your mind. Hear me now, right? This is all interesting. This is all very uh, academic in a certain way. If you have never responded to this good news, an invitation to respond to it might be the most important invitation that you ever receive. If you have never said, right, like this could be very interesting, it could be an interesting glimpse into Christianity as a worldview. This is about you. This is where your only hope in life and death is found, is if there is one who has come and not just in spite of your sin, but because of your sin, was compelled by love to pursue your good, to take on the debt that was rightfully yours to pay, to fully bear the judgment that was yours, and did that so that not just you could be rescued from eternal judgment, but so that the image of God might be restored progressively over a lifetime in you, and that you might actually step into who God created you to be. In all, of, in all of the challenge and trials of life, right? Like, that's not a step into the good life. Whoa, 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 let's be careful here, right? Like, Jesus says what you're stepping into is bearing your cross, but what you'll have is me as you do it. That's what human beings are created for. That's where actual lasting joy is found. I just want to give you an opportunity to do that now. I don't know where this strikes you. Maybe for many of you, this is the 50th time you've heard this. But before we step into communion, I just want to give you a minute or two to reflect on these truths, how God might have you respond, and then I'll lead us through communion. Worship team, you guys can come up while we do that.